I get the opportunity tonight to introduce you to my dad, Barry Long, who's going to give us a message tonight. So if he'll come up. Snap here. Um, when I talked to Tyler, he said he wanted me to do an Easter message. Uh, but it's a week after Easter. <laughs> Unless you're Greek Orthodox. It's Easter today. So let's just all pretend <laughs> and convert to Greek... Greek Orthodoxy for one week. I have to tell you, you know, every first day of the week to me is Resurrection Sunday. It's what we celebrate every week, so it's all good. It really doesn't matter. The celebration is the same. We choose one day a year to really go for it. And why don't we just do that every Sunday is kind of my argument about the thing. Some of you know, uh, and in fact, a lot of you probably know that J.R.R. Tolkien is one of my favorite authors. And uh, his Lord of the Ring trilogy, I am probably going through it for the, f I think it might be the eighth time right now. And some of you are saying, that is weird. Why are you doing that? Because in it, evil is destroyed. Hope is restored. Evil is destroyed beyond repair. And hope is restored. Peter Jackson did a great job with the movies. You know, I was wondering if anybody could ever do that. After reading the books, and then I heard the movies were coming out, and I said, ah, it's not going to work. But Peter Jackson did such a great job in doing it. And he depicts the fall of evil in a scene called the fall of Mordor. Mordor is Sauron's kingdom. Sauron is the Satan fixture. Uh, uh, Satan character, and if you don't think there's a lot of theology in J.R.R. Tolkien, you haven't read him. Good Catholic boy. And so the ring, of course, was the heart of that story. It's the Lord of the Rings, and the ring had to be unmade. It had to be destroyed because it was the source of Sauron's power to control people. And Frodo, Frodo lives. Frodo threw the ring into the fires of Mount Doom and unmade it. And when he did that, the entire kingdom of Sauron began to collapse. Would you like to see that scene? I, don't, I love your enthusiasm. Here it is. Kind of got sad there at the end, didn't it? They're all worried about Frodo. Frodo lives. He's okay. So you all need to know that. The reason I showed that scene is I believe there's something very similar that happened in the invisible realm when Jesus Christ died and rose again. I believe waves of power went out from that. And the title of this message is A Dead Man Came Back to Life and It Changed Everything. That's what we're going to be looking at. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for... Every person in this room today, uh, thank you for the deliverance you're going to do. Thank you for uh, the mercy you're going to show. Thank you for building up your church through your book. And Lord, I ask that you'd help me do what I'm supposed to do. Thanks. Amen. So... Something like this began 2,000 years ago, and the key word there is began. 
Because all of us know that evil has not been destroyed, but with the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's been defeated beyond repair. You only have to look at the shootings in Covington and what's going on in Ukraine to understand that we live in the already and not yet of God's loving kingdom. It will be consummated when Jesus returns for the second time. The good news, though, is evil is collapsing all around us right now. It's already happening. The future has essentially invaded the present. Eternal life is already here and working itself out in us. So here's a question my skeptical friends ask me, and I love skeptics, by the way. If you are one, I'd love to talk to you after. And you may want to use a couple ideas because what they ask is a very good question. Skeptics say, okay, the resurrection's a big deal. I get what you're saying to me, but how do you know it happened? You ever get a question like that? It happens all the time. I think St. Paul thought it was a real crucial question too. Let me read a text that he says, where he talks about the importance of the resurrection. He says, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then all our preaching is useless. Some people think a lot of preaching is useless anyway. <laughs> all our preaching is useless uh, and all your faith is in vain. But the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of a great harvest who will be raised to life again. So, do we just take Paul's word for it? How do we answer the skeptics? Can I give you two ideas that you can just tuck away in your hard drive and you can take out of here and talk to your skeptical friends who may be asking you the same question or maybe you're in that same place yourself right now. Here's the first idea. No scholar has satisfactorily answered the meteoric rise of the Christian church. Why does it exist? What happened? Something cataclysmic happened. N.T. Wright says, he says, how do we account for the fact that by A.D. 110, there was a large and vigorous international movement already showing considerable diversity? The answer to the question is we really can't. There's not been a satisfactory answer to that question. I'll give you an answer. A dead man came back to life. It changed everything. It was the resurrection of Jesus. Here's a related idea that you can tuck away, and that is 12, 11 of the 12 original apostles of Jesus died a martyr's death. Now, if it was some vague vision that they had of this risen ghost, if they hadn't touched him and seen him, why would they die for a lie? That's an unanswerable question as well. They died because a dead man really did come back to life. And it has. It's changed everything. I could really spend, and some of you who've studied this stuff could vouch for this, I could spend the rest of our time together giving you more compelling evidence of the resurrection. Here's the point. You don't have to have a frontal lobotomy or blind faith to believe in what we're celebrating today. It's the best news ever. And you need to take that home with you. Here's some practical implications of this stupendous news for us right now. If you're following Jesus, the Mordor of your own life is collapsing. 
Eternal life has already begun in you. You've already begun to change. The future's invaded your present. You're starting to become the person God's called you to be. It's already, it's already happening. Well, you say, what does a resurrection person look like? What am I being changed into? Well, I think in this church we've mentioned a lot that it, you're being changed into somebody who looks like the master. You're being changed into somebody who looks more and more and more like Jesus. Or as one scholar says, into a new way of being human. I like that. Now, we usually, you know, when we blow it, we invoke our hum humanity. We say, you know, well, I'm only human. Well, what if we raise the bar for being human to where Jesus is instead? Maybe that's the way to be human. You know, if you are new to the vineyard in Covington, or you might be here in the off chance of really trying to understand who Jesus is yourself or understand better, first of all, I want to just say thanks for coming. I'm just so glad that you've come. I'm so glad that you're here. But if you're not happy with your definition of being human or you're still using being human as an excuse for your mistakes, there is a new way to be human. The changes that you're after are here. And so you've come on a good day. A dead man came back to life. It changed everything forever. Jesus is inviting all of us further into this change or into this change for the very first time. In a word, and this is an important word, what Jesus is offering with all that is Freedom. Now, I do not mean freedom in the more recent definition of that word, which means I can do anything that I want. I mean it in the richer, older definition of the term that means freedom is becoming what God created me to be and not being impeded from becoming fully human. That is the real definition of freedom, and that's the freedom Jesus offers. And today, I want to camp on one thing that a lot of people in this room and a lot of people in your world and your life need to be free from, and that's fear. What would life be like if you were free from fear? I'm going to work from a text from Hebrews. Here it is. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. A couple important ideas here. There's more than a couple, but let me just give you two. Here's the first one. That is that Jesus arranged for us to be totally identified with him. He took on, the Bible says, flesh and blood. Just pinch yourself, that's what Jesus took on. Flesh and blood. The infleshing of God, theologians call it the incarnation. That is what Jesus did to totally identify with you today, to become like you so you could become like him. That's how he worked it out. So the second idea is that he became a trailblazer. That's the actual Greek word here. That is Jesus blazed a trail through death 
And then he bade us follow. And as we trust him, what's true of him becomes true of us. And he defeated death. He is your trailblazer today. It's a big deal. I, I love the way Max Lucado sort of, you know Max Lucado, anybody know who he is? Uh, I, I love the way he illustrates this. He tells a story about a South American village that it was isolated from, uh, in the Amazon basin from most other people. And somehow they got this killer plague and the plague was running rampant through the village and was knocking them off, killing all kinds of people. There were medical missionaries in the area. They found out about it. They went to this village and, and they said, we have a cure to what's ailing you, what's killing you, but you have to come to the medical center to get the cure because of the various ways it had to be administered, okay? So that was the story. There was one problem. The villagers were paralyzed by fear. See, there was a certain river that ran between the village and the medical center. And the villagers believed it was cursed. They believed if you would even touch it, you would die, and then bad things would happen to your family as well. And so they weren't about to cross that river to get the cure. They're not going to do it. One brave missionary went to the village, did everything he could to get them to come and to, for the cure, and he got them as far as the bank of the river. The whole village was on the bank of the river. And then he waded into the narrow, rather shallow river, and he began to splash himself with the water. It didn't have any effect. They just stood there and looked at him, shaking. And so in desperation, this missionary turned and he dove into the river and he swam underwater to the other side and he came up on the other side and he pumped his fist in the air and all the villagers cheered and began to cross the river to get the cure. You see what's happening here? This is what the trailblazer did. He says that you no longer have to fear the river of death He's gone before us into the river of death. What's true of Jesus is true of you. You should probably repeat that to yourself. Maybe have it tattooed someplace. <laughs> What's true of Jesus is true of you. He's your trailblazer. He's in solidarity with you. You're in solidarity with him if you've trusted, if you've trusted him. So, the resurrection, in short, delivers us from the fear of death, as the Hebrew writer just told us. And that kind of hope will get you through a lot of hard times in life. Just think about it. You know what's going to happen when you die. And it changes up the way you live, if you're sure of that, if you embrace that. But this evening, I want to take it a step further. Is that okay? Because here's what I want to, how I want to reason with you. If... Jesus defeated the granddaddy of all fears, death. Isn't it reasonable that he could also mitigate and get rid of and overcome all of our little debilitating, paralyzing fears that people in this room are now experiencing? My grandmother actually went through this process. She had a life-threatening heart attack when she was in her late 50s and Psalm 27 suddenly became her favorite Bible verse. I'm going to read the first verse of the psalm. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then the psalm goes on to catalog a list of fears that probably some of you in this room have as examples. You can read it yourself. It's amazing. Grandma arrived at the same conclusion that I just offered, and that is she decided to be fearless for the rest of her life. I'm not sure she made it, but she had a good foundation. Why? Because Jesus conquered death, the granddaddy of all fears, of whom shall I be afraid? That's the reasoning. That's the way it is. So what's the key to understanding this? I think Psalm 23 is one of the keys, and it's probably one that some people in here have memorized. It says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. And then it goes on. You know what it says next? Because you are with me. That's the key. Knowing who you're with and knowing who is with you is the key to getting rid of all these other fears that seem to paralyze us and keep us from becoming fully human. If that's what real freedom is, then fear paralyzes us from reaching out to that place that God wants us to reach. I lived in Erlanger, Kentucky. Any Erlanger people here? <laughs> My friend from New York called it N. Wrangler. He was from Long Island, you know, he's just smart aleck. And uh, we had about 200 acres of land back when there was land there. And uh, I, as a kid, just roamed that land with my friends. There were a couple of lakes on the property, and we just had a great time on that land. Um, one day we went back, and some older boys had come into our property. They had come up on the railroad tracks from Covington. And one of them, they had to be in their late teens and 20s, and we were probably 10, 11 years of age. They intimidated us, they threatened us, they terrified us, and ran us off our own land. I was terrified to go onto my own property for weeks until I asked my father to walk the property with me. And when I did that, I was praying that these guys would show up. What changed? I knew who I was with, and I knew who was with me. If you know your dad's with you, fear is going to have a lot less power over you, and you're not going to be kicked out of your inheritance. Your inheritance is to become like Jesus. Fear can no longer stop you when you know who's with you. It doesn't happen instantly. It's over time, but it's going to be defeated. So here's a question. I ask all of you, just what is your pet fear? Or what fear has you as a pet? I'll give you a second. If you say, well, no, I'm cool. No, you're not. <laughs> ask your mother. <laughs> ask somebody who knows you well. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's crazy. When I first started public speaking, um, I was so afraid to get up on stage for the first 10 years of public speaking that I would have panic attacks. I drove my wife nuts. 
I'm still a little nervous when I speak publicly. But I was so nervous, I decided that I was going to give up my inheritance doing what God called me to do, teaching and preaching in front of people, and do something else in the church, because I couldn't do that. And then the Lord spoke to me, and he said, Barry, I am with you when you go up front and speak. And I am faithful. And I got to thinking about the previous 10 years, and there wasn't any real big train wrecks. Yeah, I screwed up some, but there wasn't any. I mean, he was. He was always with me. He was always faithful. It was always fruitful. And I began to get rid of that fear because of who was with me and who I was with. That's how it works. And, you know, paralyzing fear messes with his awe. I've already said, pastors are the worst. <laughs> We're afraid of everything. We're generally insecure people. We need approval. Because we stand up in front of people and we want you to accept us and like us. We want you to think we're cool. And so we have plenty of fears ourselves. And then there are people who have been in love and they thought they were going to get married and the thing didn't work out. And so they've closed off their hearts to any kind of relationship at all because they don't want to become vulnerable again because they got burnt and they're never going to get burnt again. They are afraid. And then there are people, maybe some sitting in this room, who are so afraid that you're not going to have enough for yourself that you can't give your time and your energy and your money away. You're paralyzed by the fear. Some of us are just afraid of the future. Many of us are afraid of rejection. Could I go on a long time here? Okay, somebody's saying, well, you did hit mine, so I'm good. Okay, you're going to have to tell us what yours is. So let me offer this to you. If we're paralyzed by these lesser fears, fears lesser than death, we can maybe say, well, okay, death's the worst, but isn't being paralyzed by these little fears like little deaths? Anything that prevents you from becoming in all God called you to be is like a little death. And Jesus abolished death. And he can abolish your fear. Um, I want to close with this. Don't you love it when preachers say that? But never believe them. <laughs> never believe them. I'm going to talk about three things, ways we can cooperate with Jesus, the one who defeated fear. And these three things will be very familiar to Vineyard Covington people. And the first one is be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. And by necessity, that means coming into solidarity with him by trusting him. As he put to one of his friends, her brother had just died tragically. And Jesus said this to her. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's the key question. Do you believe this? 
Have you embraced Jesus by faith? Are you in solidarity with Jesus? Have you come to be in Jesus and has he come to be in you? That's all because of the resurrection. That's all available because of the resurrection. And so if you're going to be with Jesus, by necessity, you have to first embrace him by faith. Maybe there are people here who haven't done that yet. I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a few minutes to do that. If you've already trusted Jesus, we've talked a lot in Vineyard Cove about his presence and the classic Christian disciplines of prayer, meditation, study, fasting. Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you spend time with Jesus in these classic Christian disciplines, the peace of God that passes understanding that Josh was talking about will begin to ameliorate your fears because he's the Prince of Peace. And spending more time with him helps me get rid of those paralyzing fears over time. The very spirit of Jesus. Second idea is become like Jesus. Sounding familiar to anyone yet? Being with Jesus, become like Jesus? Just pretend it does, just sing, yeah. Yeah, we've heard it. Because your pastor's gonna be very disappointed if this is new information for you. It's not. So the idea is to become like Jesus, which is, as we have said, a new way to be human. Let me say what it's not. It's not about gritting your teeth and trying to be perfect. Oh, man, get rid of that. Get rid of that one. Here's what it's about. God has given us the spirit of Jesus. This is the reason we can be so intimate with him and he can be so intimate with us is because he's come to live in us. The Holy Spirit of Jesus is inside of those who trust him and are in solidarity with him, identified completely with him. That's how it happens. And so he can empower us to do what we can't do on our own. And so we grow in the character of Jesus and we grow out of destructive thinking and behavior and we grow out of things like debilitating fear. That's how it works. I used to work, or I get to work, I should say, with people in the recovery community and there's an old story that goes around the recovery community about this very thing and the story goes like this. There was a woman who had a raging alcoholic for a husband ran her out of house and home. They were homeless, all because of this drinking. And one day she was talking with her friend. She said, I've witnessed a miracle. And her friend said, what? You've witnessed a miracle? She said, yes, I've seen God turn straight bourbon whiskey into a roof over my head and furniture. That's what growing in the character of Jesus will do. It's a miracle because you're going to be more and more and more like him. Finally, I cooperated by doing what Jesus did. What did he do? Let's hear. What did Jesus do? He died and he rose. Okay. Thank you. What's, he healed people. He blazed a trail. We talked about that earlier. He loved people. He fed people. He forgave people. He encouraged people. In fact, he loved people into relationship with him. That's the stuff Jesus did. 
And as you do it, what's going to happen as you begin to serve, like if you go to Isaiah House, for example, on Saturday, it's going to decentralize yourself. In other words, you're not going to be looking at you anymore. You're not going to be looking at the things that paralyze you anymore. You're going to be looking at the person you're serving. And your fears are going to dissipate. I have a friend who's a pastor, and a guy came up to him after his meeting, and he said, you, you know, I, I just have to find Jesus. And my friend perceptively said, um, okay, come with me tomorrow, and I'll introduce you to Jesus. I'll show you where he is, and you can find him. The guy kind of rolled his eyes and said, oh, really? You're going to introduce me to Jesus? He said, yeah, just show up. Trust me. Do you know what he did? He went down into a housing project, and they were feeding the poor and praying for the sick, and the guy came, and my friend said, Jesus is right here. This is always where you'll find Jesus. He's with the poor. He's serving. He's giving his life away. And as that guy decentralized himself, he began to agree and saw the wisdom that the pastor was trying to pass on to him. When we do what Jesus does, we experience him. So, I'd like to do some ministry um, because I think there are people here today that the Holy Spirit wants to move out of being paralyzed by fear. On this Orthodox Easter Sunday, <laughs> I think Jesus wants some people to rise from the dead. I think he wants to invite people who don't know if they're really in solidarity with him yet to get prayer. And we're going to have prayer teams up here in just a minute after we sing a song. And we're going to invite people to come. There are also probably going to be prophetic words, words of knowledge, that sort of thing. But right now we're going to, we're going to worship. So the worship team's coming up.